Welcome to Super Talk, a podcast hosted by Hillside Public School Superintendent Erskine Glover. The goal of Super Talk is to provide an informative platform where Hillside Public School students, staff, and stakeholders can have a candid conversation with the district superintendent, as well as be spotlighted for their hard work and initiatives. Peace, peace, peace. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Welcome to another episode of Super Talk with Superintendent Glover from Hillside Public Schools. Let's give a round of applause to another great episode that we're about to launch in our series of leadership. And today I'm honored, I'm blessed and fortunate to be able to get a scholar, educator, a leader of of many here on the campus of Kane University, which I'm sure you can tell we're in a little different space today. But I'm blessed and fortunate to be joined by the none other Dean Gray. Is that correct, if I'm not mistaken? This is true. Dean Gray. Dean. Here at Kane University. Let's give a warm welcome to Dr. Sancha Gray here at Kane University. Thanks so much for such a wonderful greeting. Yes, we are happy. First of all, I appreciate you giving us a little bit of your time and joining our podcast series. I've been excited about getting you on because you are a woman of leaders, many leaders, but you're also just a positive voice. And, and I wanted our young people and those who listen to our podcast to get a chance to hear you. So introduce yourself. Tell us, uh, you know, I, I say that elevator pitch about you before we <laughs> jump into our questions. Well, good morning. Thanks so much again for inviting me to be on your podcast. I was very excited to receive your invitation and just have this moment to just be my authentic self and just talk a little bit about my journey and what's gotten me here. You know, I'm a Brooklyn native, born and raised in Brooklyn. Shout out to Brooklyn. So always somebody from Brooklyn in the house, New York. Well, I wish they were from Brooklyn, Uh right? Either they are or they wish they were from, but admittedly, I get to say I'm a Brooklyn native. Um... And it was really uh, the, the, the training ground for a lot of what I'm going to probably talk to you about and unpack during this podcast. But um, proud to be here. I'm a wife of um, gospel artist, musician, Floyd Gray Jr., mm-hmm. who's been playing forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> two beautiful children. And I have two beautiful bonus children mm-hmm. that live in New Orleans, oh, Louisiana. Oh, so listen to that. Yeah. Energy, flavor, and spirit. From one New Yorker <laughs> to another New Yorker, uh, this is going to be a great podcast. I understand that. No disrespect <laughs> to my Jersey people, but, you know, NY do or die, something about that. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But we've been in Jersey probably longer than New York. So True indeed. Some people want to try to revoke <laughs> our card. And I'm like, True you never get it. Never, never, never. You always know your fertile ground that you were born. Dr. Gray, Dean Gray, you have inspired so many. Um, whether you were a classroom educator, building level leader, um, or now in the multiple roles, because you've been a former superintendent. Now you're a dean of a university. What role has inspired you the most? Or inspired? Yeah. What role has inspired you the most? Wow. I can't, um, I really don't think of it as um, one being more inspirational than the other one. I see it more like um, building blocks, right? So each role I feel has catapulted me into the next role. And and in every role that I've been in, it wasn't like, um, it wasn't, it was always, it just felt like I should be here. Like I belong in this space. 
And I've taken all of those lived experiences from rule to rule to get to uh, the next rule. And then when I reflect, I marvel, I marvel over how the whole time I didn't know the path, but it was very clearly outlined for me. Why education? Like you just mentioned, you didn't know the path, but why education? What what led you on this path to being an educator as opposed to going into engineering, technology? What well, high education? For starters, I, I loved school. As an elementary school student, I loved it. I thought it was the best, the best experience. I just and I did school. I did it well. Right. So I performed acted academically high. Um I enjoyed being a part of like extracurricular activities. Every year I was in a play in the sixth grade. I was the only black, uh, the only black girl in the play Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, wow. And I played Ruth. Oh, wow. Right? So I was one of the daughters and um, was told I did very well <laughs> in that role. So, um, you know, like the space, I've always enjoyed school in that regard um, in terms of elementary school. Things went sideways in junior high school and mm-hmm. ultimately in high school Okay, where that love and hate really that I really understood um, the dynamic and the passion that goes around. Right. Love and hate, because I went from loving that space to hating that space mm. by the time I got to high school. Wow. And so ultimately I wound up dropping out of high school as a result. OK, so it's because of that experience that I said I have to go into education because I need to create a space that people could love from beginning to end. And I didn't. And I wanted to be able to do that for other people's children. Well, let's expand upon that a little bit because folks, I always say we don't know folks journey to the space that they're in. What were some of the key points in your early educational space when that middle school to high school that began to turn from love to hate? So I didn't find um, I didn't find the engagement really there. It wasn't it wasn't present for me. I didn't know. First of all, you know, I, we have edu speak as educators. Right. Mm-hmm. So I know to use terms like engagement mm-hmm. at the time, though, I, I would go home and tell my mom, oh, my gosh, it's so boring in school. And she would say to me, well, if it's boring, you should finish all your homework with no problem. And I'm like, I didn't know how to articulate that it was, there was a disconnect for me. I knew I could bring more into the space than the space was bringing to me. Right. Wow. And I also knew that I didn't need the handholding sometimes that the teachers gave me. And then there were other times that I needed them to hold my hand, but it always seemed to not be there. Right. So when I could go and move, progress with a lesson, they would hold me back. When I felt like I needed more support, it wasn't there. And I now understand differentiating instruction in a way that I didn't know it then. And also the focus on a singular test, the singular snapshot in time. I mean, I, like I said, I did school. I knew how to take tests. I knew how to pass them. That was never an issue. But it's like, what did I do with that information after? It just never made sense to me. So what redirected you back? Because, you know, I'm sure the... First of all, I appreciate your vulner- your vulnerability, right, and your transparency in saying, oh, listen, I didn't complete high school in the traditional sense, right? Right. But what brought you back? And then brought you into the classroom space to say, <laughs> not only am I coming back, but I'm coming back even a better version of me. So um, 
I had a family member that I was very close to, third cousin. Um, I thought his situation was very unique because it was so fundamentally different than anything I had known in my home. I grew up with very middle class, very strong middle class values. So this idea of not completing high school was a very foreign concept to my mom. It was one that she was not, she, she couldn't entertain that concept. And I knew that because all growing up, it wasn't if college, it's when college, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It's which college. Right. So my grandmother, my maternal grandmother was also an educator in Brooklyn. Um, and uh, one of the first black females to attend girls high at the time, mm-hmm. it was girls high. Mm-hmm. And so education has always been a conversation in my home with expectations around scholarship mm-hmm. always. So I knew that in not completing high school, I better have a plan in place when I go home that I could articulate to my mom. So what I understood and what I learned about the process then, uh, and also I didn't exactly hang around a lot of people in school that understood a different trajectory mm-hmm. or an alternative trajectory. It were it was people in my neighborhood that were overaged and undercredited that introduced this idea of a GED to me. Mm-hmm. And because I've always been a phenomenal test taker, seemed like a, a great fit. But I knew I had to go home and explain that to my mom and to my dad. So um, what happened was I was writing a lot to um, one of my distant cousins who found himself incarcerated from the age of 13 on. He was like in every correctional facility in New York. So I always had this passion for criminal justice. And so I said, okay, wow, what could I do to really effectuate some change in that space? I think I'll go to a major in criminal justice. So what I did was because I was in New York city at the time, still um, I took my GED and quickly enrolled at John Jay college Mm -hmm. of criminal justice. So I started college actually younger, right. than most of my counterparts, I was able to start at 17 because I knew there couldn't be a gap because my mom made it very clear. What you're not going to do is, be in the house all day and I'm getting up every day going to work. Uh, So that's not what that's going. We've heard that. That's not how that's happening. And that was also not my desire. Right. I really still loved learning, but I didn't like the structure of high school. Right. I thought it was very restricting. And I went to a couple of high schools and one of the high schools I went to was in Manhattan. I said to myself every day getting off the train, there's so much I could learn in the city. I feel like why am I going to the classroom? Right. There's nothing there. And this is where experiential learning opportunities really mm-hmm. began to underscore a lot of the work that I pushed forward um, as a superintendent, as a director of curriculum and instruction. Because I said there's a lot of students like me. They may even like school. They may even work well within the confines of the building. But they still need to go out and see what life is like, yeah. what what those opportunities look like. And so my passion really came from and the pivot from criminal justice into education really stems from this idea of feeling like, wow, everyone has a problem in this major, in this track of criminal justice. It's kind of like, well, can I get to them before there's a problem? What can I do to effectuate change before they get into the system? Uh, Education. So that's what brought me into education and why um, I still look at 
the whole student and trying to create opportunities for all students, not just the air quote traditional path student. Your journey, that's there's a lot of powerful words and, and powerful situations you just mentioned. Um, the fact that you recognize that the learning space was not meeting your needs. I wonder often sitting in the chair that I do now, how many of our students are feeling that same way? And and what age does that start? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and the conflict and being able to ex explain and articulate oneself about mom, dad, grandma, this space isn't built for me. Right. And what's the alternative space? The beautiful thing about growing up in New York City is, like you said, that experiential learning. There's so much you can learn from in places, but not everyone has that. Some places right. are very remote and rural, right, mm -hmm. where they don't have that. I'm sure that, that your experiences led you to be the educator and leader um, that you've, you've become. But let's pivot a little bit to talk about now you are sitting in the chair of principal. How did you feel? When you sat there for the first time saying, now I'm leading students that look like me and share similar ideologies as me. So I served as a vice principal of a middle school. And um, it was somewhat of a challenge in that uh, the challenge was that was the space where things started to kind of tilt for me, where it wasn't as positive. And I could. For in my personal, right? Because in New York City, I went to a junior high school. So our grade configuration was seven, eight, nine. So I served in a middle school as a vice principal, which the configuration was grades six, seven, and eight. So sixth graders, you know how they yeah, are, right? right? right still right. kind of like trying to find their way mm -hmm, in the right, bigger school, right, right, but right. very still elementary in right. nature. So I was able to identify very early students that were similar to me mm -hmm. in that space. Um, and they tend to rear their heads up around seventh grade. That's when right, you kind of right, start right, seeing, right. you know, um, some differentness in uh, some of the socialization, some of the expectations, and even how they present, right, right their speech. Right, 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 right. Um, and so what it did for me was it really helped me think differently and about how I would speak to teachers, in terms of the building of relationships with those kinds of students, because all of those students mm -hmm. came into that space needing to have a certain type of a relationship. So for me, the challenge was being able to communicate to the educators in that space who uh, were more accustomed to dealing with a traditional, whatever that is. And so, you know, I still try to understand and get people to understand when you say traditional what exactly does right, that mean? Right, right. I have yet to really meet a traditional student, by right, the way. I yeah, haven't met one. Right. <laughs> but I understand that there in our lexicon, we have this um, image of that traditional student. So it's really about just being transparent with your own experiences. And it was for me trying to communicate that to some of the faculty and staff that I was working with about how we're going to serve students differently. It wasn't always met with warm fuzzies. But it was always well received right. in terms of, all right, let's try and see. Right. Let's see right. what you're going to do. With right. This. right. It's a powerful chair when you sit as a building level leader, right? And then you begin to expand your lens about wanting more. Um, but throughout that, you have to have a core set of values. Um, our podcast that we are putting forth in this series is about leading with purpose, passion, and pride. When you hear that phrase, what does that mean to you? 
<laughs> I chuckle because um, there were three pillars uh, under my superintendency. It was per- purpose, performance, passion, and purpose. So you have two out of those three. Okay. And I chuckle because of the intersection there um, in terms of our thought. And what it means to me is that it's, it's kind of simple um, in that we all have been placed here for a purpose, with a purpose, and on purpose. And so it's our task. Um, it's our mission, really, to figure out what that purpose is and live it. And we all know people who live in their purpose. We meet them and we're, we're engaged by them. We want to be in their presence because they exude that passion, right? That goes along with knowing who you are, knowing why you're here, knowing the people that you're here to, to engage with, to touch and knowing the legacy that you want to leave behind. And so, um, passion and purpose are drivers for me every day is why I pick my head up off the pillow. Because I understand that uh, my parents felt gifted by my presence, but my gift is what I have to leave. Um, I have to be light in life in this in this place, in this space. And, you know, um, I, I believe in God. So I believe that God has ordained me for such a time as this to do this work, to be in this space. And that's that's really my driver. So when I, I, I just latch on to those two words every time I hear it, um, you know, I grew up going to the black church. Uh, um, my parents were not as devout, but my grandparents, my paternal grandparents were. So I grew up in a black Pentecostal um, tradition. Church and, all day, huh? Yeah. All day. <laughs> it's just like, you know, just, I don't know, pack a bag. Yeah. Yeah, but they had dinners, so you didn't have to worry about yeah, that because yeah. you're going to eat dinner and go back to church yeah. and you go for night service and all nine yards. But um, that has been what grounds me and what continues to ground me and what will always ground me is uh, my faith and understanding that that's, that's what I'm supposed to do. It's my moral obligation. And so I know when I'm in a secular space, um, I can't help but always center um, this this vocation that I've been blessed to be in around that because that's just really all it's about for me. So when you say I inspire people, I didn't, I don't um, move in this space to be inspirational, but I'm thankful that they are inspired by anything that I've said, done, or communicated. You're very humble in saying that, but you are inspiration. And I, I think there are many times we don't recognize the power of our voice yeah. until others around us come and give us our flowers and tell us. And it's, but your humble, your humbleness, you're being humble and saying that you don't mean to be inspiration because you are very inspirational. Thank you. Um, a black woman, sure, um, but you're a powerful human being. <laughs> I've watched you from afar for for many years, even before our interaction. Since um, I've got into my superintendent chair, so I I, I know about you and of you. And so I decided to say that I'm going to put on record that you are inspiration. Thank you. And I, and I, appreciate I, that. I, I really have seen your work and I appreciate what you've done for the profession. You just said something that I want people to just resonate with. Your parents were gifted by your presence, but you recognize the importance of your gift to others. Right. And I'm mm-hmm. paraphrasing the last part. Um, that's powerful. Your parents are gifted by your presence. So what do we do with that gift? Right. When you meet young people, right, who, and our young people today are, 
I think they are moving in so many different ways, some very positive and ways that I think are just going to change society and some that seem stagnant. What do you say to young people today when you encounter them and you encounter still from elementary all the way through the collegiate level? Mm -hmm. What do you say to them to keep them inspired about staying on that path to learning and not necessarily path to school, but path to learning? Yes. So um, it's interesting. I just had a conversation with a, a student here at Kane University, um, and I happened to have, happened to pull up his GPA and look at his schedule. He doesn't have any courses uh. right now. What's going on? Like, it's my responsibility to get you to degree completion and beyond. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about like what's happening. And so what I like to do oftentimes when I'm when I see students, regardless of pre-K mm-hmm. all the way and beyond, right? Mm-hmm. University and beyond. Uh, what I like to do is I like to talk to people and just find out about their journey. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you doing? Like, where are you? Like, what's happening? Tell me about yourself. Because I find that um, when people are listened to, they often they often feel like they're not listened to, right? Right. So when someone shows interest to listen to them, that's when we begin to really understand um, what's going on and then offer some input right. or thought partnership right. is really right. the term I like to use. Right. I like to thought partner with individuals because um, I never really liked people telling me what to do. Right. <laughs> yeah. I've always had aversions to being told what What's to that do. Brooklyn in you. I yeah, understand. exactly. Exactly. My parents tried to tell me what to do. Push back there. Yeah, right. right, right. Um, so I, I never really liked it. So that's why I like thought partnership because I like to hear what you're thinking. And then I like to be able to repeat it back to you in a way that you might not have articulated it to cause you to think about what you said perhaps differently or maybe the same way. And we just go into the cipher. Right. <laughs> Bring about that hip hop flavor. I understand. Exactly. <laughs> going to the cipher uh-huh, with Bill and uh-huh, then we come back uh-huh. and um, create a plan of action. So that's kind of what I like to do with students. And I have always done that. And I, in particular, I like to do that with students that not necessarily fit the mold for what people would tend to want. So the teachers that would say, oh, this student so disruptive. I'm like, great, send them to me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So ones that are the most disruptive, those are the ones I want to talk to. My first teaching profession, uh, I mean, my first teaching position, uh, the the hiring principal, Rudy Kafele, I must, uh-huh. I must mention him by name. Uh-huh. He said, uh, Gray, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. So I told him, I said, I would like to work with the most challenging class that you have. He said, really? Absolutely. I'm built for that. I was a substitute teacher for three years. Oh, yeah. You know, I had to establish myself every every period in the classroom. So I'm like, you could bring me your most challenging group of students. And I'm from Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, those are the students that I still look for. Um, although students who may not be as challenging, uh, I still find great joy and pleasure in speaking with them and trying to thought partner with them, too. But I've always had an affinity and a... And a an attraction to students that don't fit the mold. Because that was me. Yeah, yeah. Those are the ones that, you know, they, I don't want to 